If you have a Bible, if you would open it or turn it on or swipe to unlock, find Acts chapter 9. See if this works. Bam! Acts chapter 9. You guys have been in the book of Acts for the last couple of weeks, and uh, that's awesome. We need to know the story of Acts, and we need to know the, the birth of the early church. We need to know how this thing got started from Pentecost to the ends of the earth. And this morning, we're going to see one of the great, great pivot points in the book of Acts, and that is the conversion of a man named Saul. You guys have already been introduced to Saul uh, in your study of Acts, there in Acts chapter 7 with the stoning of Stephen. Uh, he was the one before the coats of those who stoned Stephen were thrown, and he approved of his execution. Saul was a Jew. He was a Hebrew of Hebrews, born of the tribe of Benjamin, circumcised on the eighth day, as to the law, blameless, a Pharisee among Pharisees. Galatians tells us that he was zealous for the traditions of his fathers, that he persecuted the church of God violently. He tried to destroy it, and he tried to destroy it because he thought that's what was honoring to God. He thought the God of Israel hated this blasphemy that was going on from this man named Jesus and these followers of these, these Christians, these followers of what they called the way. But as we'll see today in Acts chapter 9, Jesus has something very different in store for Saul. And we'll also see the beginning of Saul's ministry and how there were some people who really didn't understand what was going on with this one who used to persecute the very faith that they believed. Now he's preaching the faith that they once, he once tried to destroy. They, they don't understand it. We'll also see how the religious elite in Israel, the Jewish Pharisees, saw Saul not only as a blasphemer, but now as a traitor. And traitors deserve to die. And so we'll see how very quickly on the persecutor of the church quickly becomes the persecuted. And then finally tonight, or this morning, we'll see uh, there at the end of Acts chapter 9, this, this shift, this shift. We'll see, uh, remember Jesus says in Acts 1-8, you'll be my witnesses and the Holy Spirit will give you power and you'll be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in Judea, and Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. And at the end of Acts chapter 9 and Next week, when you guys get into Acts chapter 10, you'll see that last bit of Acts 1-8 start to be fulfilled. The gospel goes to the ends of the earth. In other words, the gospel goes to the Gentiles. So you should have found Acts chapter 9 by now. I want us to read the first 19 verses. We'll try to read all of the text today because there's nothing more important that we'll do than to hear the word of the Lord and respond to him. So uh, my commentary or editorializing of the text is inferior to the Spirit-inspired word. So let's read Acts chapter 9, starting in verse 1. But Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues at Damascus, so that if he found any belonging to the way, men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. Now, as he went on his way, he approached Damascus, and suddenly a light from heaven shone around him. And failing, falling to the ground, he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. But rise and enter the city, and you will be told what you are to do. 
The men who were traveling with him stood speechless, hearing the voice, but seeing no one. Saul rose from the ground, and although his eyes were opened, he saw nothing. So they led him by the hand and brought him into Damascus. And for three days he was without sight, and neither ate nor drank. Now there was a disciple at Damascus named Ananias. And the Lord said to him in a vision, Ananias. And he said, Here I am, Lord. And the Lord said to him, Rise and go to the street called Straight. And at the house of Judas, look for a man of Tarsus named Saul. For behold, he is praying. And he has seen in a vision a man named Ananias come in and lay his hands on him so that he might regain his sight. But Ananias answered, Lord, I have heard from many about this man, how much evil he has done to your saints at Jerusalem. And here he has authority from the chief priest to bind all who call on your name. But the Lord said to him, go, for he is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel. For I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. So Ananias departed and entered the house and laying his hands on him, he said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus who appeared to you on the road by which you came has sent me so that you might regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. And immediately something like scales fell from his eyes and he regained his sight. Then he rose and was baptized and taking food, he was strengthened. Let's pray. God in heaven, we thank you with hearts full of gratitude and full of joy that you, the infinite, transcendent, holy God, King of kings, creator of all, has spoken to us. You revealed yourself to us, not because you needed to, but because you delight in revealing to your creation your glory and your beauty and your goodness. And so we pray, Lord, as we read and study and try to understand your word for us this morning in the scriptures, that you would mold us and shape us more and more into the image of Jesus. Help me to teach with clarity and conviction and with faithfulness to your word. We ask all these things in Christ's name. Amen. All right, so we see that Saul was the chief persecutor of Christians. He wanted to bring them bound up from Damascus to Jerusalem for trial because these followers of the way, as Luke tells us in Acts, were unashamedly blaspheming. They were committing the highest of obscene sin in Jewish culture. And so he goes to Damascus on a mission, on a mission that he thought was righteous, on a mission that he thought was good, on a mission that he thought was holy. And yet he was surrounded by light on the road to Damascus. And we know that God is light. And in him there is no darkness at all. We know that Christ is the radiance of the glory of God. And so Jesus reveals himself. Saul cannot handle it. He is blinded and falls to the ground. And he says, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he says, who are you, Lord? Who are you, Lord? Lord. Whoever is talking to Saul, Saul believes he is. He is in control. He is in authority. And he is the one who has power, not Saul. And Jesus says, I'm Jesus, the one who you are persecuting. So maybe an application for us is that when we think about Saul's conversion, when we think about the fact that here was a sinner 
who was zealous for God, but lacked knowledge. We see this in Romans. He, he was zealous like the other Jews for God. He wanted to follow Yahweh. He wanted to give his life in service to the God of Israel. But because of a lack of knowledge, he failed to understand that Jesus really was the Messiah promised in the scriptures, that he really was the anointed one of God. He really was the, the son of David. He really was the Messiah. He really was the suffering servant. So some of us in our conversion stories, we don't have any background of religion. We don't have any background other than Christianity. And maybe we have heard uh, this well-intended, <clears throat> well-intended uh, phrase from Revelation. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. Right? Jesus is knocking on the door of your heart. And if you would just let him in, if you just let him in, he would come in and he would sit with you and he would, as the... The King Jimmy, the King James Bible says, uh, he would sup with you, right? He would eat with you. Friends, Jesus is not knocking here. He does not ask permission. He is not knocking on the door of, on Saul's heart. He, he just kicked the door down. We believe as Christians that salvation is a work of God. It is not dependent on me. It's not dependent on my right response or right practice. And you heard about this Wednesday night, I hope, at CBS, that it's, it's down to the maneuvers of your body whether or not you will receive salvific grace. Brothers and sisters, your salvation is not dependent on you. It is completely dependent on the work of Christ on your behalf applied to you. And Saul is seeing this for the first time. The Lord is Jesus. And we see that Jesus doesn't give Saul an option. He doesn't give Saul a suggestion. He gives Saul a command as Lord. Rise and go to Damascus. I'll tell you what to do later. And Saul obeys the word of Christ. No food or water for three days, blinded and totally helpless. This fearless zealot was now, as one commentator put it in this text, completely in shambles. I mean, he can't even drink water. You have to think that when we see Saul's response to the risen Christ, we have to remember our own salvation. We have to remember our own conversion, and we have to believe this principle. When you encounter the risen Christ, you cannot stay the same. When you encounter the risen Jesus, you cannot remain the way you were. It's not an option. We see this clearly in things like the Exodus story, right? Where Yahweh reveals himself to Pharaoh, reveals himself to the Egyptians, and one of two things happen. There is the Pharaoh whose heart is hardened by the truth of God. And there are some, we know this, there are some who start to obey God's commands. You see this with the, the plague of hail. It tells us that some Egyptian families would bring in their livestock because they believed that Yahweh would do what he said he would do. And then you get to Exodus chapter 12, after the Passover, when Israel is uh, ransacking and looting Egypt, as they leave out in the Exodus story to go and worship God on the mountain, it says that a mixed multitude went with them. What's that tell us? There were Egyptians in that crowd. 
when you encounter the Lord, in Saul's case, when you encounter the risen Christ, you cannot just stay the same. The status quo is not available to you anymore. You will either surrender your life or you will harden your heart in rejection. So we see Ananias now follows the Lord Jesus. He's a believer in Damascus, and he tells, Jesus tells Ananias to go to Saul. Fulfill a vision that's been given to Saul. Jesus says, Ananias, Saul has seen a vision. I've given him a vision of a man named Ananias who's going to come lay hands on him, and he's going to regain his sight. So I need you to go to Saul and lay hands on him and help him to regain his sight. And much like Moses in that Exodus story, Ananias questions the Lord. For Moses, it's how can these things be? I I don't speak well. How will they know that I know you? What name shall I give them? Over and over, Moses gives questions to the Lord. And Ananias here questions Jesus. In verse 13, he said, Lord, I've heard from many about this man, how much evil he has done to your saints at Jerusalem. And here he has authority from the chief priest to bind all who call on your name. Ananias is saying, Jesus, are you sure? Because the reason that guy's here is to kill guys like me. And you want me to go to him? You want me to, you want me to serve him? You want me to bless him? You want me to ask you to give him favor and grace? He has ravaged your church. And Ananias is not in sin here. He's legitimately confused. He doesn't understand that Jesus is able to use wickedness and evil for his glorious purposes. Ananias, it doesn't compute to him that he would be able to use Saul for kingdom expansion. When Ananias thinks Saul, he thinks kingdom destruction. But Jesus says, go, for he is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel. Jesus says, Ananias, Saul is mine. And I can do with him whatever I want to do. And he will carry my name to the world. He will carry my name to the Gentiles. He will carry my name to kings. He will carry my name to the children of Israel. In verse 16, Jesus says, I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. Here's the point. Jesus is the one who will reveal and oversee Paul's suffering. Not Ananias. Not Ananias. We think sometimes in our flesh that there are those who have wronged us, who have caused us suffering, who have caused us hardship. We want to put vengeance in our own hands. Think about the story of Jonah. The Ninevites destroy the Jews. The Ninevites hate the Jews. The Ninevites have done wicked, horrible things to the Jews. And God goes to Jonah and says, hey, you need to tell them to repent or I'll destroy them. You need to offer them the hope of salvation. And Jonah doesn't want to do it. Why? Because Jonah wants vengeance. Jonah wants retribution. Jonah wants to be the arbiter of the enemies of God's judgment. And Jesus is saying to Ananias here in this text, that's not for you, that's for me. I will show him how much he must suffer on account of my name. So what's this mean for us? What's this mean for us? Very practically, it frees us up to entrust to the Lord that justice will come. All of us have been wronged. All of us have 
had suffering brought to our doorstep. All of us have been, in a word that Jesus says, persecuted for righteousness sake in some way or another. For a lot of us, maybe it's very, very small. But you'll hear testimony this morning. For others among the body of Christ, it's very great. And it would be easy for us in our flesh to say, I need to bring about justice in this kind of eternal Christocentric kingdom. I need to be the one who administers judgment and vengeance. And what the gospel declares to you and me is that we don't have to hold on to that. We can long for justice. We can work for righteousness. We, we want righteousness and justice to exist in our culture, in our community, among our body of believers. But ultimately, when we think that things are not going the way that they should, when we think that there are things happening around us that are unfair or not right or unjust, we can trust that Christ will be the one to make all things right again. And that truth leads Ananias to do something that if we're not looking for it, we may miss. Look at verse 17 again. So Ananias departed and entered the house, and laying hands on him, he said, Brother Saul. Brother Saul. The one who had breathed threats and murder, who stood over the execution of Stephen, who had been binding up and imprisoning Christians as a career choice, is now referred to by Ananias as brother. As Christians, when we see a confession of faith, a profession of faith, we want to be cautious. God will bring to completion the work that he begins in you and me. Sometimes, as Christians, if we're not careful, we can fall into this kind of skepticism that says, well, this person says that they're a Christian, but I mean, I don't really know how he's living his life, and I don't really know where she came from, and I know her history, I know her past, I know his past. And so, I, you know, I just don't want to say whether or not they're a Christian or not. I mean, I know they're saying this, I know they're, they're saying the right thing, it seems like their heart's in the right place, but I mean, you know, time will tell. Time will tell. And that, and that comes from good intentions, right? I mean, we don't have to show hands, but either you or someone you know has been baptized more than once, right? I mean, all of us have either a personal story or a close friend who thought they were a believer, who knew things about Jesus, who was confirmed in some kind of way among a local congregation, and then it wasn't until years later they realized, man, I'm not saved at all. And so it's good intentions that we want to be kind of skeptical, but what do we see here? Ananias hears Jesus has commanded Saul to go preach the gospel to Gentiles and kings. He knows nothing about his conversion. He knows nothing about his life. He knows nothing about the road to Damascus event. But what he says here is, Brother Saul, let's, if we're going to err on the side of caution or belief, let's, let's err on the side of belief. Let's encourage those who are younger in the faith. Let's encourage those who we know are trying to follow Christ. And we see that Saul immediately follows the apostles' commands. He's baptized, filled with the Spirit, and strengthened. So, it hasn't been on the screen, but that was the conversion of Saul. 
But now, for sake of time, since we're already past 10 o'clock, man, how does Kevin do this? Uh, <laughs> next, we need to see the ministry of Saul. Saul does not wait. Saul does not wait. Look at verse 19 and 20. Your heading probably cuts 19 and a half. Let's just read the first couple of verses. For some days he was with the disciples at Damascus, and immediately he proclaimed Jesus in the synagogue, saying, He is the Son of God. And all who heard him were amazed and said, Is not this the man who made havoc in Jerusalem of those who called upon this name? And has he not come here for this purpose, to bring them bound before the chief priests? But Saul increased all the more in strength and confounded the Jews who lived in Damascus by proving that Jesus was the Christ. Saul is immediately proclaiming Jesus in the synagogues. He is preaching the faith that he once tried to destroy. And here's the, the kind of the quick application for you and me as believers. You ready? Saul did not need special training to witness to the gospel of Jesus Christ. I am so thankful that we have guys like Launch and we have guys like Brother Hal and we have guys like Cliff who do life classes. And there is so much opportunity for you as a college student, whether it's discipleship or CBS or uh, MCGs or whatever it is, for you to be trained up as a faithful believer. That is awesome and good and right and we should long for those things. But what we see here is that if you know enough about the gospel to believe it, you know enough about the gospel to proclaim it. Proclaiming the good news of Jesus is not something for better Christians than you. All of us have received the Great Commission. All of us have been given a task to go and make disciples. And what we see in the witness of Saul is that he didn't have to sit around and go, man, I just don't know what I'm supposed to say. No, he, he goes into the synagogues and says, Jesus is the Son of God. Now remember, I'm not saying that you should go, I'm not saying that the, the corollary is you go to the, your most atheistic professor and you stand before his desk and you say, Jesus is the Son of God. It'll probably not go well for you. Remember, Saul knew the Bible. He knew it. Most um, scholars would say that as people were trained up to, to one day hopefully become rabbis and Pharisees, that by the age of five, six, seven, they would have the Torah memorized. They would have all of it. Genesis to Deuteronomy, they would know it. Some would say that, that they would, in order to learn the scriptures, they would fill up these stone tablets. They would have the Hebrew written on them and that they would be able to read them with their fingers. And they would put their hands over the text so they could just feel the text, but they would also coat that tablet in honey. And as they were reading and memorizing the text, they would eat the honey. Because your word is like honey to my lips. It's sweeter than much fine gold. They would have been cultivated to correlate scripture with satisfaction. Saul knew the scriptures. It wasn't like he came in with zero knowledge. During those three days of neither eating nor drinking, can you imagine the connections that Saul was making in his mind? I mean, could you imagine for three days, no eating, no drinking, no seeing, just praying as Jesus says to Ananias? Can you imagine how much of this knowledge is being changed? This Jesus is the Son of God. That's a huge theme and type from the Old Testament. 
the son of God, this one who comes from Adam, born of a woman, this promised son of Abraham, this promised son of David, over and over again, this son who comes from God to make all things right. This Jesus for Saul, Hebrew of Hebrews, was one worthy of proclaiming. And what is this reversal? Christians say, well, what, what is going on? Didn't Saul come to destroy the followers of Jesus and now he's preaching about Jesus? I don't understand. How does this make sense? But the reality was he could not be refuted. The Pharisees didn't know what to say. The, the Jews didn't know what to say. The truth is able to withstand error. So when you go to proclaim the gospel, when you go to meet with someone who doesn't know Christ, who doesn't understand the truth of the Bible, you don't have to wonder, is what I believe sustainable? You don't have to wonder, am I on shaky ground here? You don't have to wonder, is there some kind of philosophical argument or secular argument or other religion that is just going to have the trump card over the gospel? No. No, that doesn't mean you know all of the answers, but it does mean that you can walk forward with confidence. We see in verses 23 through 25, the leaders of the Jewish people were trying to destroy Saul. They wanted to kill him. They plotted to kill him because he's a blasphemer and he's also a traitor, but Paul escaped through very unlikely circumstances. He was lowered down through a basket and escaped the murder of the Jews. What does this, what does this mean for us? Why, why do we need to see that text? Why do we need to know that Saul was rescued because of a basket? Well, I think maybe just one point is that through very unlikely circumstances to us, the sovereignty of God was clearly at work to fulfill Jesus' message to, An to Ananias. This Saul will preach the gospel before kings. It will happen. So next we see in verses 26 through 31, Saul in Jerusalem. And, and here, we don't have time to read the text, but here Paul attempts to meet up with believers, but they're afraid of him because they think it's a trap. They think Saul is saying, hey, I want to come meet you and talk about Jesus. And they're like, that man wants to kill us. <laughs> like, I'm not falling for that. So what, <laughs> can you blame them? I mean, can you, can you blame this quick turnaround of hearing this one who's been breathing threats and murder of the people that you, that you love and trust? And now he's saying, I'm, I'm one of the ones that you should love and trust. So Barnabas, this brother uh, of Christ, took Saul to see the apostles. And according to Paul in Galatians 1, 18 and 19, at this point, he only saw Peter and James. And apparently they affirmed him. Apparently Peter and James heard the gospel that Paul was proclaiming. And they said, yeah, that, that's, that is the gospel that we too have believed and proclaimed. And at this point, the brothers in Jerusalem begin to care for Paul. His preaching and his message convinced him that he was in fact a believer. So they sent him away for his own safety because more uh, murderous plots were being uncovered and, and some danger was uh, being kind of rumored about with Paul in mind. And so the brothers said, Saul, you got to get out of here. You got to get out of here. We need to move you down to Tarsus and, and keep you safe for just a little while. Remember, he will go before kings. You can't die yet. Verse 31, an amazing text. An amazing text. Verse 31, we need to read it. So the church throughout all Judea and Galilee and Samaria had peace and was being built up and walking in the fear of the Lord and in the comfort of the Holy Spirit, 
it multiplied. Acts 1.8 is being fulfilled right here. You got Judea, you got Samaria, you got Galilee. You have this whole area that used to be understood as this united kingdom of Israel under David and Solomon that has been fractured because of idolatry and wickedness and false religion is now because of the church of Jesus Christ and the power of the Holy Spirit been reunited. It's been brought back together. It's been, in a word, reconciled. It's not been reconciled through government. It's not been reconciled through the state. It's not been reconciled through some kind of uh, kingly edict. It's not been reconciled through some kind of cultural process. It's been reconciled through the church. I think that has some implications for us as well. We shouldn't put our hope in princes. We shouldn't put our trust in horses or military might. We shouldn't put our hope in anything other than God himself and his ability to bring all things together. And this church of Jesus Christ multiplied how? Because they were walking in the fear of the Lord. They knew God's word and they obeyed it. So for some of us, here's the tendency for maybe two kinds of people in the room. And you may find yourself somewhere in the middle, but by and large, there's one of two. You're one of two. When you think about biblical knowledge or doctrine or theology, you love it. You love it. You want to dive deep. You want to understand the complexities and the structures and the systems. You want to know how everything gets put together. And it's a very like cerebrally satisfying thing. Some of you just would naturally want to go read some book on theology so that you might understand that you can put the Bible together so that you can be able to say, this makes sense. And there are maybe some of you who say, that's not really getting the gospel to the lost. Like that, that's not really like a thing that has teeth on it. That's not really doing anything. And, and I would much rather, more so than reading a book on theology that's kind of old and antiquated and maybe difficult to understand, I'd rather walk among people and love them where they are and, and tell them the truth of Jesus, that he's come to save sinners. Well, you want to walk in the fear of the Lord. Yes, and amen. But we can't love who we do not know. And so here's the point. If, if our doctrine and our theology doesn't move from our head to our hearts, if scientific knowledge doesn't produce godly wisdom that leads us to live lives full of loves, it is a plague. And yet, if we love and show compassion and show grace and mercy and kindness without any kind of doctrinal formulation or understanding, without any kind of basis for which we stand on, if any kind of understanding of sin and salvation and the exclusivity of the gospel and the exclusivity of Christ and the fact that you and I cannot be saved apart from the work of God in our lives, if we love people without telling them what we know, we are joyfully leading them to destruction. So we need to walk in the fear of the Lord and in the comfort of the Holy Spirit. We need both. Last but not least, Saul, Saul's conversion, we saw Saul's ministry, but thirdly and finally, uh, we see the advance of the gospel. So we see in verse 31, the gospel has reached 
Judea and Samaria and Galilee. Israel has come to know Christ. Not fully, but access is there. The church is there. And we see in verses 32 through 43, this pivot that happens. We're we're taking our eyes off of Saul and we're putting our eyes back on Peter. And if you just see kind of the trajectory of the book of Acts, this is the, the, the book of Acts starts with a lot of Peter, not a lot of Saul, and ends with a whole lot of Saul and not a lot of Peter. And, and this point right here, the end of chapter 9, going into, verse, into chapter 10, is the beginning of this switch. So now we've met Saul, we've seen his conversion, we see that he's working, we see that he's safe in Tarsus as, as of right now. But we're going to go back to Peter and see what he's up to. So look at verse 32. Now as Peter went here and there among them all, he came down also to the saints who lived at Lydda. There he found a man named Aeneas, bedridden for eight years, who was paralyzed. And Peter said to him, Aeneas... Jesus Christ heals you. Rise and make your bed. And immediately he rose. And all the residents of Lydda and Sharon saw him, and they turned to the Lord. Now, Peter Peter is in Lydda, which is northwest of Jerusalem. So just very quickly, we think about like studying the Bible and not glossing over things and recognizing that this is a historical account. Well, just basic question. If Lydda is northwest of Jerusalem, why does it say here that he came down to the saints who lived at Lydda? Going down to go this way. How does that make sense? Something we need to know is that for Jews and followers of God, Jerusalem is on a mountain. Jerusalem is always above other places. So over and over again, you read the Psalms, you read Galatians, you read other New Testament documents, people go up to Jerusalem, and they come down from Jerusalem. And he comes down to Lydda, and he meets Aeneas. He's paralyzed and bedridden for eight years. And we see here that Peter, the apostle of Jesus, has this miraculous gift. This miraculous gift. He speaks to the bedridden Aeneas and says, Jesus Christ heals you. He doesn't say, Aeneas, I'm praying that the Lord would heal you. I mean, I don't know what his role in all this is. I don't know what his, his revealed will in this is. And I know that one day you'll have full healing this on the other side of life when you're with Jesus face to face. But for right now, we just pray that, Lord, you would heal Aeneas. That is not what happens in this text. Peter looks at Aeneas and says, Jesus Christ heals you. Get up. And he gets up. So where does our healing come from in this life for the life to come? It comes from Jesus. But what you and I need to see is that Peter, the apostle, has a kind of control of this gift that is not normative, is not typical. Now, I, I believe that people can be given the gift of healing. I've seen examples of God using brothers and sisters in miraculous ways to bring healing to people who need it. But friends, if you find someone who says, I can wield the gift of healing like Peter could, brother, sister, you better take him to the hospital now. But I don't think you're going to find him. I don't think you're going to find someone who's been given that kind of control over the gift. So notice this miracle served a specific purpose. Look at verse 35. All the residents of Lydda and Sharon saw him and what? And they turn to the Lord. Miracles in the, in the New Testament, miracles among the people of God in the church 
are serving a purpose, a very specific purpose. Those who witness this sign turn to the Lord. And so miraculous signs are a means by which the gospel is displayed for the unbelieving world who have not yet experienced the life of the body of Christ in their context. So, so here's why that's important. Some of us may wonder in Auburn, Alabama, why don't we see supernatural events as often as, say, maybe our brothers and sisters in the Middle East or our brothers and sisters in Africa or our brothers and sisters in Asia where there is no body of Christ to speak of? Why is it that we, the church, the, the ones who love Christ, we're full of saints. Why don't we see God move in supernatural ways like this person does who only knows maybe one believer in his whole town? There's your answer. Miraculous signs are given for the specific purpose of revealing to an unbelieving people that the gospel that this person proclaims has power. Brothers and sisters, the church is a supernatural event. The fact that you and I, Auburn fans and something else, college students and senior adults, rich, poor, black, white, no matter what the difference is, we can be united on this common affinity in Christ. The blood of Jesus has crossed every kind of barrier. The world does not understand how to make sense of that. So don't long for things that are right in front of your face. It is a gift of the Spirit of God that we can gather together Sunday by Sunday and say, we are totally different in so many ways, but you are my brother and I love you. You're my sister and I would lay my life down for you. That's supernatural. Last but not least, and you're not going to have any time to discuss this. Okay. Uh, <laughs> In verses 36 through 43, we see this story that should get more playtime, but the fact is this woman's named Dorcas, and so uh, <laughs> we, don't, we don't like to talk about it. It's like, in, it's like, in, <laughs> it's like Jonathan, Jonathan's son, Mephibosheth. It's like if his name was Marky, like we probably would talk about him a little bit more, but no. So, so Dorcas, also known as Tabitha, in verse 35, or verse 36, rather. <laughs> Now there was in Joppa a disciple named Tabitha, which is translated means Dorcas. Just so unfortunate. She was full of good works and acts of charity. She was bearing fruit. Verse 37, In those days she became ill and died. And when they washed her, they laid her in an upper room. Since Lydda was near Joppa, the disciples, hearing that Peter was there, sent two men to them, urging him, Please come to us without delay. So Peter rose and went with them. When he arrived, they took him to the upper room. All the widows stood beside him, weeping and showing tunics and other garments that Dorcas had made while she was with them. Peter put them all outside, knelt down and prayed, and turning to the body, he said, Tabitha, arise. And she opened her eyes. And when she saw Peter, she sat up, and he gave her his hand and raised her up. Then calling the saints and widows, he presented her alive. And it became known throughout all Joppa, and many believed in the Lord. And he stayed in Joppa for many days with one Simon, a tanner. We're not going to have time to, to talk about all of the, the similarities here, but when, when you read Acts chapter 9, verses 36 through 43, if you know your Bible, you should immediately be thinking of Mark chapter 5, verses 35 through 43, and Jesus healing Jairus' daughter from the dead. There are so many similarities between this text and that text. So in Joppa, farther north than Lydda. So Peter, look, Peter is going from Jerusalem. He's going to Lydda. He's going to Joppa. 
And in chapter 10, next week, you'll see he goes up to Caesarea. The gospel is advancing out of Jerusalem, out of Israel, and it is going straight to Cornelius, a Gentile. But this is the path that God has laid out for Peter. So Dorcas, Tabitha, passes away, and they send for Peter. And I always wonder, like, why? Like, why? Like, why did they send for Peter if she's dead? Had they heard about him healing the paralyzed Aeneas? Had they, had they heard the story that Peter was able to wield a kind of miraculous power? So Peter arrives, and much like Jesus before him with the little girl who was dying, they showed him where she lay. And women were weeping, and Peter put them all outside. Why did he put them all outside? I, I don't know. The text doesn't say. But in making connections to Mark chapter 5, one of the reasons why Jesus put all the people outside is because they didn't believe that he was able to do impossible things. And Peter says, Tabitha, arise. And Jesus says, little girl, Talitha, arise. And immediately, they open their eyes. Jesus holds the little girl's hand. Peter tells Tabitha to arise and then takes her by the hand. The saints and the widows, both with Jairus' daughter and with Tabitha here, are stunned as they witness someone who was dead now alive. And the news of this miracle in Mark chapter 5 was kept quiet. Jesus strictly charged them not to tell anyone. Why? Because if Jesus was seen in Jerusalem as merely a healer, he would not be fully understood as the Messiah. And so news can't go out that there's this Jesus who's this prophet who's a healer because that's not who Jesus is. Ultimately, Jesus is Savior. He's King. But now, in Acts chapter 9, the risen Christ has ascended to heaven. He's reigning at the right hand of the Father. And the news of the miracle did what? It led many people to believe in the Lord. Now they know that Jesus, the Christ, the Messiah, the King of kings is the one who heals. And Peter stays in Joppa with Simon the Tanner. We're not sure why. The text doesn't tell us why he decides to stay with Simon. But we, we know, looking ahead in the story, we see the providence of God. Not too far north in Caesarea, a Gentile God-fearer named Cornelius was about to have a vision that would lead to him hearing the gospel through Peter. The witness of Jesus was about to be revealed to the Gentiles, sparking the spread of the gospel to the ends of the earth. But that's next week, not this week. So, yeah, so let me, let me pray. Thank you for listening. I hope, I hope you've been encouraged and challenged by the word of the Lord. And um, we see just the good news of the gospel in Saul's life. We see the power of the gospel through Peter. And I pray that you might see that in your own life as well. Let's pray.